0: I'm Gautam Kumra, Chairman of McKinsey Asia, and you're listening to the Future of Asia podcast series. The Asian century has begun. The region is now the world's largest economy. As Asia's economies evolve further, the region has the potential to fuel and shape the next normal. In each episode, we are going to feature conversations with leaders from across the region to discuss what Asia's rise means for businesses across the globe join us.
1: Asia is at the epicentre of the climate crisis. If greenhouse gas emissions are not urgently reduced, the effects of climate change will become increasingly severe. Our research shows that an average of $3.1 trillion per year is required for the region to achieve its net zero emissions target by 2050. Hello, my name is Asila Azil. And welcome to a new episode of the McKinsey Future of Asia podcast. Over the next hour, we will explore what new financial innovations are needed to support this net-zero transition for emerging markets and developing economies. In this episode, we have our host, Cindy Levy, senior partner at McKinsey & Company, interviewing special guest Mark Carney, co-chair of GFence and the UN Special Envoy for Climate Action and Finance. This episode was recorded as part of the Transition Finance Towards Net Zero, Scaling Blended Finance Conference, organized by the Monetary Authority of Singapore.
2: Mark, thank you very much for being interviewed as part of this conference hosted by the Monetary Authority of Singapore and supported by GFANS. If it's okay with you, I'll just Introduce you in a minute or two so that the audience live at the conference can have a little bit of background. So, Mark Carney is co chair of GFANS and also the UN Special Envoy for Climate Action and Finance. Mark was previously the governor of the Bank of England and prior to that, the governor of the Bank of Canada, and has held a number of international roles, which I won't go into, but that includes being the chair of the Financial Stability Board. So, Mark, thank you mu- very much for being with us. And maybe before we go right into the interview, just a word on GFANS. So, GFANS was launched under your leadership last year in April and amalgamated a very large number of financial institutions representing a very large value of financial assets. Maybe just very briefly briefly. Where is GFANS now in terms of presence, shape, and geographic representation? And then we'll go into the interview.
3: Cindy, just to give a bit of background on GFANS, as you said, we launched GFANS originally uh, at President Biden's um, climate summit in April, which really was the U.S.'s effort to kickstart and accelerate climate action into the Glasgow summit. The intention was to build GFANS, which at the time of President Biden's summit was around $30 trillion dollars of assets was to build it into Glasgow and really span the waterfront of financial institutions. So banks, insurers, asset managers, asset owners, as well as the key providers of financial market infrastructure, ultimately export credit agencies, others, so that all aspect of uh, types of finance is not just scale, but breadth of finance was focused on uh, developing the tools, frameworks, the markets, so that the financial system could provide capital to get emissions down, to get the world on the path to uh, one and a half degrees. At Glasgow, we launched with um, about 450 institutions. It's over 500 now. It was about 45 countries. It's uh, almost 50 countries now that uh, those institutions are headquartered in. And even though, unfortunately, most... Variables um, and measurements in the financial system have been going down over the course of the last uh, several months. The assets uh, of GFANs have uh, still exceed now $130 trillion. So, if you combine the balance sheets of those entities, and I think the important thing to recognize is, and I'll just reinforce, is it's a commitment of these institutions. They all have commitments, not just that their financed emissions, so the emissions of their clients and their investments, will be at net zero by 2050 but bringing that forward that they will contribute to the fair share of the almost 50% emission reduction that the world needs to accomplish by 2030 and in addition particularly for the banks to have five year decarbonization plans net zero plans that we'll get into that in our discussion as well as annual reporting of those financed emissions so the future is brought to the present and Really, what's happening now is, uh, of course, we're looking to grow GFANs, as as you would expect. Uh, We are very focused on making sure that it is tailored to different regions. I'm sure we'll get into that. But as well, turning these commitments into action. And that requires a series of measures to operationalize those commitments. This hasn't been done before, and it needs to be done rapidly.
2: So let's turn now to the GFAN's master plan at at this moment in time. There were a suite of publications released recently. They covered sectoral pathways. They covered guidance for transition planning for financial institutions. They covered portfolio alignment measurement. They covered managed phase-out as a net zero tool. Just share with us, how do these fit together? And what is the GFAN's master plan at this moment in time?
3: And first, let me um, take a step back and thank you, at McKinsey, you personally, Cindy, for your leadership and helping to develop components of this and overall strategies, as well as uh, the MAS uh, and uh, Ravi Menon, particularly in terms of their roles uh, playing uh, in putting this into action and making sure that it works in an Asian context, as well as a global context. Now, you're Question: The premise of your question is absolutely right. This all fits together. If we didn't have the component parts, it wouldn't work as effectively. The sum is greater uh, than the components. But let's start with what's necessary. Well, these financial institutions, these members of GFANs have made a commitment that they will manage their financed emissions. In other words, the emissions of their clients, their investments. They'll manage them towards a pathway and then ultimately on a pathway consistent with uh, the world limiting global warming to one and a half degrees. So those financial institutions need plans themselves. They need net zero transition plans themselves. There are very different types of financial institutions in GFANS from banks to asset owners, insurers, uh, everybody in between. We want to have a common level to those plans. So the type of information, the type of governance, the mechanics of those plans is so that they're consistent and they can be compared by all stakeholders. That's the first point. But of course, finance is not an end in itself. It, is, it exists to serve others. Those others are in uh, the real economy. Uh, we like to call the real economy, so real companies, real governments. And the question is, what do financial institutions who are committing to try to manage their clients' emissions towards net zero, what do they want of those companies? And can we be consistent across financial institutions of the ask of companies? And in many ways, this is uh, the transition plan analog of the um, Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, where the focus of the TCFD, when it was being developed seven years ago is when it started, was to focus in on so-called decision-useful information. So the information that was necessary to make judgments in that case about climate risk, but no more than that, so that it's an efficient process and it's an effective process. It's the same thing with the ass of company transition plans and making it consistent across the financial institution. Okay. Third point, which you rightly reference, sectoral pathways. So what this means is, um, and where many people in the audience will be familiar with and probably use, things like science-based targets for certain sectors, the steel sector, the uh, certain elements of the transportation sector, for example. And the key point here is we need to have some consensus about how to use those pathways. GFANS is not reinventing these pathways. We're letting the experts provide those pathways, but providing guidance on how to use them, because one of the critical elements, this is a related point, one of the critical elements of getting to net zero, of having real economy decarbonization, is that there is finance flowing to companies who have plans to get their own emissions down. And that those companies can be financed and that those assets, which are not yet aligned with the transition, but are converging or aligning with the transition, that credit is given for that and that uh, the incentives are there for the financial sector to provide um, financing for companies that are putting in place the solutions. OK, next point is around managed phase out. We're all aware that if we're going to get to net zero consistent with that one and a half degree objective, there will be substantial stranded assets. We see it most obviously in uh, fossil fuel generation, such as coal. But there are there will be other examples of that. And the issue is that we need a system and an approach, a framework, so that those responsible financial institutions, those, if I can put it shorthand, those members of GFANS. Who are looking to be part of the solution that they can finance the wind down of those assets in other words keep those assets in the system the system where there's scrutiny where there are guardrails there are those sectoral pathways uh, in terms of the speed with which those assets are phased out and there's financing that can help support a just transition so that is also developed and then my last point and the last element of this framework is a way to bring all the component parts together which is to do an assessment of what's called portfolio alignment uh, because ultimately whether you're a bank an insurance company an asset owner asset manager you're looking or you should be judged over time at to what extent is your financing portfolio aligned with the transition to one and a half degrees the world starting from a position we go back to just before glasgow where the world was financing uh, a world that was going to have temperature rise, as you know, you've done the analysis of more than three degrees. Those balance sheets need to, sorry, those balance sheets need to move now and finance uh, companies that are part of the solution assets that are part of solution and get those down. Well, the way to judge that is using all those component parts. How well is your portfolio aligned or aligning to those pathways. So I'm sorry it's a long answer, but it's, it, it's to bring together all the components, and they are self-reinforcing. Uh, done properly, they're self-reinforcing.
2: Yes, and I, and I think that for those that haven't read the GFANS reports, there is a chart that shows how all of these components fit together and mutually reinforce each other. I just want to go a bit deeper on a few of them. Sectoral pathways, they're meant to be the bridge between the science and then the industrial action that every sector should be taking to decarbonize. How are they working in practice? And in particular, sectors are not equal around the world. And the sectoral pathway, the natural sectoral pathway in Asia, for example, where this conference is being held, might have further challenges. Could, could you talk about the application of sectoral pathways particular in Asia?
3: It's a great question. And the first thing is to, again, acknowledge uh, the point you're making in the question, which is not all sectoral pathways are are the same. Uh, There are regional differences, there are differences in terms of uh, starting positions, and they need to be recognized. And if they are recognized, then the incentives are aligned so that finance will flow to actions that are being taken in different parts of the world, in this case Asia, that are consistent with what needs to happen at the pace that it can in this jurisdiction. That's the first point to make. The second point to make is we should all recognize that there are some sectors that are not yet covered or are covered to different degrees by sectoral pathways. Let me explain. In, the, uh, in some of the hard-to-admit sectors, there are quite detailed or science-based sectoral pathways by people such as the the Transition Pathway Initiative or SBTI, etc. But in other industries, for example, the oil and gas sector, uh, there's actually not one of those pathways. We have higher level macroeconomic sectoral pathways that are driven by the carbon budget, not by by the technological frontier. And it's important to map those into pathways that can be used by the financial sector. It's clearly absolutely fundamental and critical. And one of the things Gfens is is doing, and and will come out in in a few weeks' time, uh, will be to publish some initial guidance. It won't be the final word by any stretch of the imagination, initial guidance around these issues uh, in order to help develop a consensus there. The third thing I'd say, and this starts to get to the Asia question, is there are opportunities to improve uh, these sectoral pathways. The, as, as I say, there's a variety out there. Um, I'm going to try to group them around these uh, Definitions, we need to standard standardize and clarify the definitions that the different pathways developers use for assumptions on carbon pricing or emissions covered. Secondly, around dependencies, we need uh, greater clarity about to what extent is decarbonization in a certain sector dependent on other sectors and very often that is the case thirdly data uh, access to underlying data and assumptions used for the pathways critical obviously and then the last one i'd flag is uh, and it's not perfect my d but detail which is this big issue which is to have additional granularity across pathways to cover time intervals um, and regions And this is clearly critical. The outlook or the pathway, for example, in the power generation sector in Europe, in in the United States, is different than it is for different regions. And I even underscore different regions and countries in Asia. And we need that level of granularity of the pathways within Asia. We can help develop it. And it's part of the role of... Bodies such as GFANS's Asia Pacific Network, uh, which I'd I'd note is uh, graciously chaired by um, the MAS Managing Director Ravi Menon, part of that is to create tools tailored to Asian financial institutions to make sure that they have the guidance uh, for the transition uh, in Asia, for example, in the power sector. I'd argue as well, or I'd suggest as well, and I'll, I'll finish here, is that with With respect to Asia, potentially more broadly, and we may come into more detail on this, the so-called Jet-P partnerships that some countries will pursue can play a very important role here, particularly in the energy sector, as the name uh, suggests, Just Energy Transition Partnership, particularly in the energy sector in terms of what is the right pathway for the transition in, for example, Indonesia or Vietnam or, or other countries.
2: And if we go back to what you said earlier about the kind of the the call now for financial institutions to not only set out their transition plans, but to make them more granular, more immediate, to demonstrate action in the near term as well, you know, personally, we think it's quite pleasing to see how many of these commitments are now being made and there's public announcements now every month. But there are also challenges with financial institutions, uh, curating these transition plans and then acting on them. There are risk considerations. There's concentration limits to really move on them. What do you see now as the real challenges for financial institutions? How, How ambitious should they be with these transition plans?
3: First is this process really began in earnest over the course of the last you know i i could say over the course of the last 2 years it's probably really over the course of the last 12 months uh when i when i say in earnest uh, the extent to which it's mainstream and uh so part of the challenge for financial institutions is getting not just in order what their plan is but of course it's all dependent on what their uh portfolio companies plans are if they do indeed have them and that iterative process of asking the right questions um us mainstreaming what's expected of companies, including tailoring them by region, but mainstreaming those expectations, uh, and then that process of engagement and judgment that comes with that information. And it will take a couple of um, iterations, a couple of turns over the next few years in order to really get traction on this. Now, of course, there will be as there always is, there'll be leaders in every sector, and and in some cases, companies, uh, glo- some global companies have been out in front uh, on this. They've been SBTI uh, signatories for a few years, or they've been part of you know mission possible initiatives or other you know major initiatives that meant they've they've got a head start. But even they can do better, and more broadly, people need to move. So the first challenge is the fundamental one, which is getting companies uh, moving on this. And this is why, in our judgment, this overall initiative is so important around uh, what you were calling the master plan. We hadn't quite termed it that, but clarifying the expectations of the financial sector of companies, getting everyone on the same page and then making sure this process is uh, as efficient as possible. I think a second issue that has been an issue and it's critical that we nail it is being absolutely clear about what we mean collectively about transition transition finance there are in our judgment uh, in order to decarbonize there are four strategies here there's clearly climate solutions whether it's you know clean energy or or things that enable clean energy there are Entities or assets that are already aligned to that one-and-a-half degree pathway critically There are those entities and assets that are Transitioning or aligning with that one-and-a-half degree pathway in other words. They don't just have a plan They have uh, access to finance and they have a credible prospect of implementing that plan and if they implement that plan um, they'll be aligned uh, with the pathway and then lastly, what we just spoke about, uh, there's the accelerated and managed phase out of high emitting uh, assets. So making sure, and this is my sort of second issue, which is making sure that uh, financial institutions understand all of those strategies. Obviously, it's for them to choose which ones they put greater weight on, but then execute uh, against that. Um, and then the last thing I'd highlight, and you—you you know, you'd expect me to say this at some point, th- there's always issues with data including in climate. That's why we want consistent asks of companies so that uh, they are providing the right data, and particularly so we can break this logjam, if you will, or chicken and egg issue around Scope 3 data. Uh, And I just underscore that, of course, and you you know this well, my Scope 3 emissions, in other words, the emissions in my value chain uh, up and down, Are someone else's scope one and scope two. Um, And so if we're all moving together, this data problem uh, starts
0: to solve itself. For years, observers have talked about Asia's massive future potential. But the future arrived even faster than expected. The question is no longer how quickly Asia will rise. It is how Asia will lead. Keep listening to the Future of Asia podcast.
2: And I just want to pick up on that. I thought that those swim lanes about the different types of strategies banks could deploy. You know, there's transition finance, and then there's managed phase-out finance. And can banks get more clear about which programs it wants to deploy vis-a-vis the client base to actually accelerate the transition? And I thought that bifurcation was extremely helpful. And spending a few minutes on the managed phase-out part of it. I think for Asia, it's profound. There are 5,500 operational coal mines in Asia, many of which are early in their natural life. How do we get managed phase-out, first of all, legitimized as a net zero tool? The GFANS paper called for that legitimacy. And then what are the types of financial structures that need to be stood up?
3: Yeah, uh, it's a great question. Um, I think the first thing, let's go straight to legitimacy. And there is a couple of ways why we to legitimize or set a different way why we think managed phase-out is essential. And the first point is to make, in the end, this is all about real world decarbonization. It's all about the carbon budget, it's all about the quantum of uh, greenhouse gases that are in our atmosphere and as a consequence of that, uh, the impacts on our climate um, and uh, and through that on human welfare livelihoods today and tomorrow. So that's in the end this is this is about climate physics and the impact. So in terms of actions by companies but very importantly actions by financial institutions, The ultimate test is what happens in the real world, what happens to actual emissions. The easiest thing in some respects, it's not the right thing to do, but the easiest thing can be to divest of assets and move carbon off your balance sheet. It becomes someone else's problem. And look, if 40 percent of the world's financial assets are in GFANS, that means 60 percent of the world's financial assets are not. Um, And I'm not saying everyone who's not in GFANS is is um, a climate denier or not managing consistent with it, but it does leave a very large pool of potential owners who could be managing assets with a different degree of focus on sustainability. So the third point is we think that it should be part of the responsibility of the current asset owner or or financier of uh, a high-emission asset if you're going to sell that asset, well, what happens to it? What do you think is going to happen to it? Particularly if you're a private owner of the asset, are you selling it to somebody who actually sees value in the asset because they're going to buy a coal plant that you would have, you would have uh, managed out or helped to manage out over the next decade, but they're going to extend the life of the coal plant, uh, in my example, um, and cause greater real world emissions. So there is a responsibility here. And then the fourth point is well, okay. If you're going to be a responsible owner financier of uh, some of these stranded assets that need to be phased out, uh, what's the time horizon over which you're phasing it out? You're participating in the phasing out. Is that consistent with one and a half degrees? How does it fit back together with uh, with those sectoral uh, alignments? And you know, one of the challenges is to to make this granular is in areas such as coal it's a it's obviously a huge uh, issue in uh, asia as you as you uh, highlighted and one of the things that we are doing um, later this fall in partnership with the uh, rocky mountain institute is to release guidance on various mechanisms for financing the managed phase out of coal and helping to be part of part of the solution um, here so I think the legitimacy point is absolutely essential. Let me say one last thing just to bring it together, which is, and this is relevant to Managed Phase Out, but it's also a meta point, which again goes back to data. And transparency is critical here. Transparency relative to the sectoral pathways is is essential, particularly around Managed Phase Out. And one of the initiatives of uh, GFANS, in, in this case, in conjunction with the OECD, with the UN, with the IMF, uh, and the and the presidency of the French Republic is to set. We're in the process of setting up a net zero data public utility, which will be an open source, open to everybody, open to all sector um, stakeholders repository of not just emissions data um, of financial institutions and others, but of their plans, of the breakdown of those plans by different strategy. Uh, including managed phase out, and uh, and others can judge the consistency of that with uh, with what needs to happen to uh, achieve the world's objectives.
2: And maybe mark one follow up question, and this might be what's going to be part of the autumn release. But in that governance of managed phase out assets and that transparency, what might you say about the reliable energy security associated with phasing out that asset early? And also the just transition, which is a question that comes up quite a bit, to make managed phase-out truly economically viable.
3: Well, yes, both uh, both are critical. I think the first element of your question goes back to sectoral pathways and regional sectoral pathways for energy sectors, and particularly oil and gas. And as you know, this is all interconnected, but there is an ele- an element of, in energy security, there are two elements of it. One is ultimately having greater energy security by increasing the proportion of clean energy. You know, nobody owns the earth. You know, the the, the wind and the sun, um, hydrogen's everywhere. So increasing those proportions creates energy security in and of itself. But also there is the nearer term issue, uh, which is uh, reliable access, and and that's where energy transition plans uh, and the overlay for that and and the regional element of that comes into play. Now, how do you get from energy security today to energy security and sustainability tomorrow? A big element of that is managed phase out, which in any economy, but we'll we'll focus on Asia, uh, Asian economies, has to be a just transition. There is concentration in communities of those stranded assets so there's a need to help people retrain and uh, be uh, be redeployed, if you will, into uh, the industries of the future. Some of that financing will naturally come from governments. So this needs to be a coordinated process. And, and then there's the financing uh, for the replacement generation in this example um, and the wind down uh, of the existing. And linking those forms of financing or or those components of financing as part of a uh, a coherent uh, energy transition and consistent energy transition is part of solving for is the managed phase out consistent with what needs to happen and the realities on the ground, but also whether or not it's going to happen. And I don't want to overburden it, but that's part of what is uh, an essential component of, uh, of JetP uh, partnerships uh, for external capital uh, coming into, uh, in, into a country to be part of this uh, solution.
2: And you've spoken about what a reliable financial institution financier should should be doing around this agenda. What about the NGOs and the policymakers? What would G fans like to see from those communities to support both managed phase-out and at-scale transition finance?
3: Well, I think the first thing is there's several uh, contributions. The first from a policymaker perspective and interrogated if you will or examined by uh, NGOs we need these credible energy transitions that are consistent with uh, the climate goals which are which have uh, a just transition component to it and and the policy making framework for those is essential and that includes uh, support for workers and communities uh, but very much includes the the fundamental enabling environment for the investment the the generic enabling environment, but also the very specific economics and incentives of, for example, in the power uh, sector, both positive incentives for cleaner energy and and um, punitive incentives uh, for the existing fossil fuel uh, that obviously build over time. So that's the first thing. The second one of the roles for philanthropic capital and official capital, whether it's domestic or foreign, is in many cases uh, to help build. The capacity in uh, in economies um, for uh, the types of financing that's required, and some of the most catalytic financing, as you know, in a number of countries, is in basically financing project preparation. It's it's relatively small dollars to the overall amount of the um, financing that's required for you know, multiple mega you know, gigawatts of um, of clean energy. But it's essential because it it, it is a risky uh, part of the process and it really can unlock broader financing. So there's definitely a role for concessional and uh, philanthropic uh, capital there. I would add that um, what is important as well is, I think, w- will be in a number of cases, will be important, uh, will be the development of high-integrity carbon credit markets Um uh, that are related to two things. One is this accelerated phase out of very polluting generation, so coal generation. And as, as you well know, of those 5,500 coal plants that you referenced a few minutes ago, uh, a number of them are relatively young. Many of them are relatively young and they could run for 30 or 40 years. We, we can't afford it uh, if we're going to address climate change. But the incentive to phase them out early can be enhanced uh, by the fact that an accelerated phase-out creates avoided emissions, or avoids emissions is a better way to put it, um, and that can potentially create uh, carbon credits uh, that can help with the economics of that. Now, it has to meet the tests of the IC VCMI in terms of the supply of those credits and of the VCMI in terms of demand side integrity, and those two groups have worked very well together to with, with complementary recommendations. But the next few years are going to be the opportunity to decide whether or not that's the case, both on the avoided emission side, uh, also on the nature-based uh, solution side, of which there are many possibilities in um, in Asia. So that's another role for policymakers. And I guess the the last big thing I'd highlight uh, for policymakers is around financial sector policy and standards and let's be clear what we've been talking about the GFANS initiatives uh, the various components of transition plans managed phase out portfolio alignment um, uh, aligning uh, transition finance this is uh in, you know our judgment a huge amount of work has gone into this there's uh, been a huge number of financial institutions from around the world that have uh, input to the development we had a public consultation, over a thousand submissions to it and various ways that that's uh, the recommendations being incorporated. But ultimately, these are voluntary approaches. And, uh, you know, the experience uh, I would suggest with climate disclosure and other critical standards for uh, financial institutions, financial markets, is that ultimately we would want a mandatory approach and associated coverage. Uh, the advantage, we, we well, two things. One, we can't wait for that to happen. Uh, time is precious, so we're using the time, uh, and it's having an impact. But secondly, by doing so, we think we have a pretty good approach here. Authorities in different jurisdictions may, uh, in adopting them, might want to adjust. That's natural, but there is an advantage to uh, uh, to getting out ahead on this. Uh, but ultimately, a role for uh, policymakers is to translate the voluntary into mandatory and ensure that the coverage is uh, is comprehensive?
2: Yes, and it, it is a very, very compelling link, the use of carbon markets and carbon credits to link with the managed phase out and to perhaps finance that upfront by a credit issuance. you know I, I hear that being discussed quite often now. if we can get those credits to be legitimate, just if I stick with blended finance, which is you know, the theme of also this conference today, there are two things we hear from individual banks around blended finance transactions. We hear that they're risky and we hear that the returns are not great. So what's it going to take? Is it that banks just need to keep pushing on those landmark deals, you know, deal after deal until their scale Or is there something else that needs to happen to actually get the blended finance to flow at at much greater magnitudes?
3: Yeah, I think the first thing is that feedback you're getting from uh, banks and others tells us that um, we don't have, uh, in many cases, the right blended finance models. And so in some cases, if uh, if they're risky, uh, it means that the public sector is not necessarily shouldering the risks. Uh, that it should. Or secondly, I, I just note that the macro numbers in terms of blended finance um, has crowded in, quote unquote, uh, less than a dollar for each dollar of, uh, of official capital. And that's not that's not great leverage. And again, suggests that uh, the instruments need to be Im- improved and, uh, and and become more effective. So what can what can be done about that? I think being very disciplined, um, and, you know, this is a charge for providers of concessional capital, for the multilateral development banks, the development finance institutions, is what are you doing that is really scaling um, the flows of capital in aggregate to uh, the emerging and developing economies that That really need it and need it now and this is not something the private financial institutions can do but i think it's a it's a challenge to the shareholders and the donor governments is uh is part of the incentive for an institution um and it is the case in some cases but is part of your incentive structure the aggregate amount of financing that is catalyzed uh how do you measure that is it a performance indicator so that's the first thing on a on a macro uh basis I think the second issue is around, well, what are the types of activities that have the highest return, again, for overall flow? I mentioned project preparation earlier, relatively small dollars, but key dollars. And it's not often um, or it's not quickly enough money that's spent from the private uh, sector in developing that, in part because of a related issue around quite often a series of very important technical issues around the enabling environment in economies. Thirdly, then becomes a question of, well, what are the instruments where the official capital, the the, the blended component or the, the official component of the blended finance, what risks are they absorbing and or uh, do they have that catalytic impact? Is it is it political risk insurance? Uh, is it an element of foreign exchange? And can the risks of those be. Appropriately diversified amongst official sector actors by pooling official finance as much as possible. Then the next point I'd make is that we do have an opportunity if, and it's an if, we can execute um, some of these JetP partnerships, uh, for example, the discussions with Indonesia. And let me explain, because The point of those partnerships is to bring together a number of the themes, a number of the actions we've been discussing, the managed phase out and accelerated phase out of coal generation, replaced obviously by uh, clean energy, more than replaced, but in the middle, um, the financing of the elements of the just transition for individuals, for communities, and the overall adjustment there. Now. Some of that obviously lends itself to official finance. Some of it lends itself to clean energy, particularly to private finance. Some of it potentially the the phase-out of coal lends itself to new markets, such as what we just discussed around carbon credits. And elements of the middle, including the phase-out of coal, could lend itself to blended finance as well. And by attacking the issue as a whole... Looking at something at large scale, but high ambition that would be aligned. The whole package would align with what, where Indonesia needs to go and the world needs to go for one and a half degrees and therefore is transition finance. It's within an overall financing envelope and a certain amount of official capital from the DFIs, the MDBs, from uh, governments. How is that best used? Uh, so that the, the, the difference is made up from private capital uh, and this process can accelerate. And I think part of what we can do is to operationalize this through actual financings uh, on the ground that are part, at least initially, discrete, large financings at a country level. And then the model that drops out of that would be blended finance models that we can replicate more broadly.
2: And this has been a, a real commitment on the part of GFANS quite visibly to make sure that GFANS has vehicles for emerging markets, developing economies to bring financing in. And, and I think this will be of, of great interest to, to the Asia region. Could you just explain how you would like this to play out? Is it that the JetP structure will continue to be replicated in more markets? And what might success look like there to really make this happen?
3: I think, and we're doing several things. So, as you, and I, thanks for highlighting it. Um, one of the things, before I answer the core of your question, is we're also working on a series of initiatives that, if you will, are bottoms up, which is an approach to get money flowing to projects at pace to establish best practices in country. And um, I know you're familiar with, uh, and many will be familiar with the the Climate Finance Leadership uh, Initiative, or CFLI, which fosters um, really an ecosystem of net zero line projects in the countries it operates. Now, CFLI and then related initiatives, uh, for example, Fast Infrastructure, which has a common approach to infrastructure financing, these are are getting funding for specific projects um, and, and providing, if you will, bottoms-up models that can be replicated and therefore scaled. There's just much less due diligence would be required going forward. They don't provide, at least out of the gate, the 10 $15, 20000000000 billion of finance that could be required for a very aggressive or appropriately ambitious, is maybe a better way to put it, energy transition partnership at JetP. And in order to do that, success—what success looks like—is a an agreement in which money actually flows, and and you know coal plants are shut off, and and, and renewables are built in an accelerated basis. Uh, success for a JetP is 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 exactly that—that that there is a deal at the end, not just an announcement, but a deal, and a deal that uh, sees finance flow and emissions uh, reduce as a consequence of that, and. In doing so, I think we can force some decisions that otherwise are part of the conference circuit, if you will, you know, dis- discussions of blended finance, discussions of carbon markets, different ideas around uh, those that don't necessarily lead to the kind of action we need at the at the pace Net zero transition requires. So uh, yes, we're throwing a lot of resources, at these processes, we are to be clear: we at GFANS, the private financial sector, are dependent on two sets of governments or three sets of actors: the donor governments, if you will, from uh, particularly the G7, the MDBs um, as potential providers of blended finance, and then, uh, for you know, above all, the the countries themselves, the country platforms who design after all, what they want to do at the pace they want to do, the form of their just transition. And, and, and we're there, you know, to send, uh, to provide expertise, ultimately capital to get these uh, these jet peas off the ground.
2: And Mark, we're towards the end of the interview, but maybe just to close with this whole architecture that GFANS is prosecuting. If you were to just roll forward a year, what would be some of the hallmarks you'd like to see? Where would you like us to be a year from now?
3: A year from now, um, we should be in a position where the following is the case, that the bulk of GFAN's members have released uh, their net zero transition plans. So they have the first iteration of these plans because what's happened by the end of this year is that we have come to consensus on the components of that. And then, you know, the institutions are working through those, it's at the end of this year, next year, they're either releasing them or they're releasing them with their annual reporting that comes a few months later. But they're, they're, they're at that point. That's the first thing. Uh, the second is that I mentioned that net zero data utility, public data utility, that that is up and running by the end of next year. Uh, and it should be up and running by the end of next year. And it's being populated with initially with emissions data and these net zero plan data for financial institutions, for companies, and a way to compare across those institutions and see consistency or not with the transition that uh, has to happen. Thirdly, uh, we very much want to see uh, from the bottoms up uh, more successful CFLI projects. So Indonesia, from Indonesia to Colombia, a uh, number of countries in between. We would like to have at least one ideally two, if not more, but concrete jet P agreements um, with financing, uh, backing them up. So not announcements about of financing, but real financing that's uh, backing up uh, high ambition uh, jet P's. And as part of that process, um, that the consensus is developing around what constitutes a high integrity carbon market, carbon credit market on the ground. This is a component of it. It's not the core of it, but it's a component of it. Um, so that we're moving a number of things forward from from concept to reality. And I, I guess the last thing I'd like to say, and we'll know this more um, with a bit of a lag, uh, but if I had a big picture, and I'm going to grossly simplify, which is that um, in the run-up to um, COP26 in Glasgow, there was a lot of work on the plumbing of the financial system by the official sector, and there were commitments. It was moving concepts to commitments uh, for the financial sector, from sustainability to net zero commitments. We got that. Now, we've been working on operationalizing those commitments. The bulk of this uh, discussion has been around those elements of operationalizing it. And as uh, financial institutions are operationalizing, as companies are coming to grips with the transition, now what we want to see over the course of uh, next year, and certainly uh, accelerating beyond is that translating into action and emission reduction that can be verified, you know, tracked, verified, and, uh, and reinforced.
2: Excellent. Thank you very much, Mark, for sharing your thoughts on the full GFAM's agenda, how it relates to some of the specific Asia opportunities and challenges. And thank you very much for participating in this conference hosted by the Monetary Authority of Singapore.
3: Thank you, Cindy. And again, thanks to the MAS and everyone in Singapore.
2: Excellent. Thank you.
1: Thank you for listening to the McKinsey Future of Asia podcast. To hear more from global experts on the net-zero transition, visit our Shapers of Sustainability page on mckinsey.com slash Asia.
0: You have been listening to the Future of Asia podcast by McKinsey & Company. To learn more about McKinsey, our people, our latest thinking, Visit us at McKinsey.com slash Future of Asia or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook.